think that we had not fully discussed uh, chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Is that correct? So perhaps it would be good for us to reread that section, and we'll talk about it a little bit. 23 to 28. 22 Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We'll read some more of that, so can you unplug it? Yeah, I don't think that's too hard. Um, so, um, we had the blood that consecrated the first covenant. And now we have the heavenly things, the heavenly tabernacle, consecrated with a better sacrifice, with the blood of Christ. It would, you know, only be through Jesus' death that we could have access to the heavenly tabernacle, to the true tabernacle, (coughs) and truly be with the Lord. And uh, the point he continues to emphasize is this idea of Jesus not having to repeat the sacrifice which is a sign that the sacrifice was adequate. You didn't have to repeat it anymore. Um, And it's just like our death. We die once, and then the judgment. So Jesus died once, and when he comes back, he will come back. But this second time, it's not going to be coming back for sin. It's going to be coming back to receive us back to himself. The only time he came to offer sacrifice for sin was that one time. That's the basic idea of that section. What are your thoughts and comments about it? You know, one of the things that you see in this, I don't remember if I said this last time, but in verse 27... The idea of it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, I think, is a passage that shows that God does not support the teaching of reincarnation. One death, and then the judgment. In reincarnation, you assume various bodies that die. I think this also, and some other passages here do as well, argues against the Catholic idea of the Mass where they believe they are actually sacrificing Christ every time they partake of the Eucharist. And uh, this would say very clearly, Jesus was sacrificed one time for all. So you hear verse 27, or at least I do, a lot. Um, but it never seems to be really talking about comparing it to how Jesus died once. So do, do you take it out of context? Well, in one sense, perhaps, 
Although what it's doing is to use the fact that men die once to prove that Jesus' death was once. So it definitely is assuming men die once and then the judgment. That's a fair statement. But in the context it's saying since that's true, then Jesus died once and that takes care of sin. So it's not really a, a misuse of the passage, but it may not be seeing the full impact of it. Really, that's the point that leads to the conclusion Jesus' death was once. So the premise is that men die once. Yes. Not that Christ was offered once. Yeah, that's the conclusion. Right. He's, he's offering this substantiating evidence that Jesus died once. Because, like Ariel said, it seems like it's used in a different way. That you know, That's like the conclusion. And... Mindy and I were talking about it, actually. Um, and I was trying to figure out if there were other passages which says the same thing without quoting this. That says that men die once? Mm-hmm. Maybe not in so many words. Now, there are some other teachings that might lead to that conclusion. You get the impression that the rich man and Lazarus could not return. Um... What about, like, um, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive according to the deeds done in the body, not the bodies, and passages talk about the resurrection of the body, and so forth. All those, I think, a conclusion that's accurate from those is that death only happens once. Besides that, we pretty well have figured that out anyway on our own. Uh, I think that may be the point, the reason he uses that. I mean, everybody understands, those who believe in reincarnation accepted, that you die once. You know, so that's a pretty accepted fact that, you know, even a relatively uneducated person would probably have uh, come to that same conclusion. Other comments and questions? Isn't that you know, verses 27 and 28 also, you know, like we talked about last time when we were going through chapter 9, uh, a contrast with the animal sacrifices, which were over and over again. You know, These animals had to be sacrificed over and over again. They were different animals, but it really, the difference between one sacrifice and another from, from time to time wasn't that big of a deal. And here it's saying, Men die once, Christ only had to die once for this sacrifice. Yes. Right. I think that's the point. <clears throat> Good summary. Other comments or questions? Alright, let's move into chapter 10 then. Wait, I have a question now. I knew it. <laughs> um, back in verse 25. It talks about the priest entering the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. This is a strange question. Would it have made a difference if he had, if the human high priest had entered with his own blood as well as the blood of sacrifices? Mm, well, I don't guess. I mean, he couldn't offer his own blood. Because well, he, he was guilty. all of it. But, well, oh, saying, oh, you're saying it's not yeah. pure, so, okay, yeah. all right. Okay. And he would have been dead, so it would have been kind of hard to go in there. Well, I was thinking 
partial. <laughs> Although I think that would not have been an offering. Because I think the idea of offering the blood is the idea the animal's been killed. Okay. And the blood shows that. You know, when you talk about Jesus shedding his blood for us, would it have been the same if he had just pricked his finger and, you know, or whatever? Now, I don't think that's the point at all. I don't think the point of shedding blood is just the idea that he bled. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that he gave up his life. <laughs> Done. The uh, due penalty for sin. Exactly. Other thoughts? All right, now chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay. Now, he really is summarizing this point about how animal sacrifices are inadequate. And the thing that he uses to prove that is what? (laughs) And what does that tell you? I mean, you know, we still got the sin problem. You know, if, if, if animal sacrifices really did the trick, you wouldn't have to keep offering. It's kind of like saying... Well, you've been cured of your uh, disease, but you have to keep taking your medicine. Well, if you had to keep taking your medicine, you weren't cured. Or like saying, you know, you paid off your mortgage, but you have to keep making the monthly installments. You know, or whatever. If animal sacrifices solved the problem of sin, you wouldn't keep offering them. The fact that you keep offering them is an indication that they were not ultimately able to deal with the sin problem. Jesus was. That's, I think, what he's saying. You know, every year, you have to offer sacrifices for sin and remember that you have sinned and, you know, the last year's sacrifices didn't do the trick for this year's sins. You know, you still have to offer those sacrifices. Um... And furthermore, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You can't, you really can't deal with the sins that are voluntary rebellious actions of a free will being by killing an animal. It's just not equivalent. Comments and questions? So do you think that's the emphasis then of verse 4 uh, to cover, to, to address the sins that are not, you know, the, the ones that are uh, unintentional? you think that's the primary thrust? Or is that just included? Well, really, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away any sin. Right. So I don't know that it makes any difference. But, but even if it were, even if they were... Under the old law, there seemed to be no uh, set sacrifice for that kind of sin. I agree. Okay. I agree. Okay. But but the fact is, there's no sin that bulls and goats can take away. You know, 
So you, it, I don't think it would be accurate to say that animal sacrifices forgave sins. Or that the sins were forgiven because of the animal sacrifice. That the animal sacrifice provided the adequate atonement. I think it did not. That didn't mean they didn't have to offer the sacrifices. They did. That was the condition God put upon their receiving his blessings and being forgiven. But when they were forgiven, it wasn't because of the animal sacrifices. Is, is the idea in verse 2, <clears throat> the having once been cleansed kind of part, um, is that like, you know, on August 4th of 2003, you committed a sin, and so you offer your sacrifice. And then the next year, you're offering another sacrifice for the same sin on August 3, 2000, or, or is it like the new sins that you commit, or? Yeah, I don't know that it's so much going back and offering more sacrifices for the same sin. Um, it's just the idea that every year you're offering more sacrifices. You know, I suppose that on the Day of Atonement, they primarily would have thought of the sins that had, committed, had been committed in that year. But his point is just, you have to keep offering. You know, you never got to say, this is the last sacrifice we need to make. Now, you know, we're in the clear. But no, I don't think it was that they, they would think of going back and, well, you know, we're offering now these sacrifices for the sins 20 years ago, just like we did 19, 18, 17, 16. I don't think it's that. Then, how does the sacrifice, I guess, how does the sacrifice of Christ then, in what sense are you cleansed so you no longer have to have consciousness of your sins and... You don't have to keep, there's no more sacrifice that has to be made, I think is his point. You know, you don't come and offer more sacrifices to God. You know that his sacrifice paid the price for all sins. So you don't have this consciousness of the need to offer another sacrifice. And the idea of being made perfect is not... Sometimes this has been read as you are cleansed from this sin and you have no consciousness of sin and therefore you will never sin again. No, it's not that. Which He's just saying these sacrifices really don't perfect the person. They don't really, they don't really forgive the sins. They don't really deal with the problem of sin. They were a necessary condition, but they in themselves could not really solve the sin problem. That's what I see. Can you tell I've studied this with denominationalists before? Oh, uh, well. <laughs> good. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Just makes me more confused. I mean, I study with brethren sometimes, and that can be a little tough. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hard, this is hard to get your, your head around. When you think about everything that was said in Leviticus and Old Testament passages about your sins are forgiven, and then you have this statement, and you wrap in the the law was useless, and you, you know you put all that together, and it's it's somehow easy to get kind of uh, sideways in your thinking. I agree. Um, 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and maybe that's why he has to really press this point, is that it might be easy for the Jews to have thought that the sacrifices were the actual means of atonement, and that sacrifices themselves could really forgive sins. But he's saying, well, if that were true, why do you have to keep offering more sacrifices? And you know that the death of an animal is not really adequate to forgive sins. So it may be that he's sort of making them think about this in a different light. I mean, I think it's hard for us because we see well, we go we go various directions trying to solve our dilemma. I mean, a lot of people would say there is no forgiveness in the Old Testament. How they could say that and read the Old Testament, I don't know. But they do. <laughs> or they will say, which I think is a really kind of a weird way to look at it, but that, you know, every year the sacrifice in the Day of Atonement just rolled the sin forward another year. <laughs> and so you got this, you know, mounting snowball that the Day of Atonement <laughs> sacrifice keeps rolling forward. That is just a whole concept I don't think you find in the Bible at all. Uh, but we're trying to come up with ways of trying to fit all this data together. And I think the better way to fit it together is to frankly acknowledge, yes, there was forgiveness in the Old Testament. But not by means of an adequate sacrifice of animals. Like as if the animal itself provided the atonement. It did not. God forgave because he chose to. We finally come to realize it's because he knew Jesus would die and pay the price. The condition was offering sacrifices. We don't believe baptism provides the means of atonement. It's not like there is some merit in baptism itself that by that act it provides the sacrifice God needs to forgive. And yet we know you have to be baptized. That's just a condition God has set. Uh, it has some comparison uh, to Jesus' death, as the animal sacrifices did. But it's not the baptism, nor is it the animal sacrifice itself that takes away the sin. Peter Russell would say, after you're baptized, you couldn't look down the water and see sins floating around, could you? <laughs> yeah. <coughs> we, we surely do understand that, you know. And, uh, you know... Uh, we we have to understand the difference between a condition and a means. Is it fair to consider that God could not be just and and say that an animal sacrifice would suffice to pay the penalty for sin? I agree. Yes, I think it is. So it was either going to be the, the sinner or something that God had to give of himself. I don't think there was anything else we know about at least that would have been an adequate sacrifice. <clears throat> Alright, other thoughts to this point?
I guess I'd always thought about sins committed from, okay, the Day of Atonement to the next Day of Atonement, and then you have a sacrifice and it covers those. But I hadn't really thought about the fact that they weren't one for one necessarily. So it wasn't like, oh, well, I committed one sin, so I have one sacrifice. It was like one sacrifice would have theoretically covered a year's worth if that were the case. If that were the case, then that one sacrifice should have been able to cover, like you pointed out, all sin for all time. I hadn't thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter how we look at this, at least for me, there's still some things I'm not confident that my concept is precisely correct. I'm trying to get it as close as I can see it being, but I may still need to refine it more. I do think the next section is helpful, though often misunderstood. It may make it a little easier for us to see what he's really trying to say. So why don't we read 5 to 10? Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a little complicated, but I think helpful. It's a reference back to Psalm 40, which might be helpful to look at. Psalm 40 is essentially David as, as a um, representative of the ideal sufferer, of the servant of God. And so many parts of Psalm 40 fit Jesus as the righteous sufferer. Um, and in 6, after talking about what God had done for him, and now he's trying to respond with gratitude. What does God really want? Well, sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. My ears you've opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Now, the proper response to God's blessings, what God was really looking for, was not sacrifice, meal offering, burnt offering, and sin offering. What God really wanted is, in the language of Psalm 40, opened ears. This is really complicated. I hope I don't lose you or myself in this. But what what he's saying here is, God wasn't so much wanting animals, he wanted opened ears. Now, the idea of an open ear is the idea of being receptive to God's word, not just to hear it, but to do it. Happened to have been studying today with a man, a very applicable passage in Isaiah 50 and verse 4 and 5. This is one of the servant songs in Isaiah. And I'm 
put, I'm putting a lot of stuff on the table here, and I will hopefully be able to uh, summarize this eventually. But Isaiah 50 verse 4, uh, in a servant passage, so talking about Jesus, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. God opened the ear of the servant, Jesus, and he didn't disobey. The idea of the opened ear is the idea not only of physically hearing it, but of heeding it, of responding to it. So what did God want Psalm 40? He didn't want a bunch of animals. He wanted an opened ear. That is what he says in verse 7 and 8. I come to do your will, the will that's written in the scroll of the book. What God wants is somebody with an open ear, that is somebody who's responsive to his word, that is somebody who delights to do what's in the scroll of the book. That's what God wants. How should we respond to God's blessings? Not with more, you know, animals burning on an altar but with an ear opened that is with a servant attitude delighting to do God's will that's expressed in the scroll of the book. So Hebrews comes to this and uses the Septuagint translation. I'm putting too many things out here at once, but I don't know how else to do this. So you can see the whole point. If you know what the Septuagint is, great. If you don't, I'll tell you. And you'll have to add that to your calculations. When we read our New Testament, we are actually reading a translation. We are not reading the Greek and Hebrew. For one reason in my case, anyway. (laughs) Um, So, we read the translation. When I quote you a passage, I quote it to you out of the English translation, not out of the original Greek and Hebrew, Some of you couldn't understand me if I said it in Greek and Hebrew, if I knew that. Um, They did the same thing in the New Testament times. Many people in that world spoke Greek, not Hebrew. And there was a Greek translation written about 250 years before Christ called the Septuagint. And so many times, not always, but many times, the New Testament writers writing in Greek do what we do. They cited the Greek translation, just like we'd cite an English translation, but sometimes the Greek translation as our English translations do wasn't quite the same. Here's an example. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, I'm in Hebrews 10.5 now, but a body you've prepared for me. Well, that doesn't sound like what it said back there. What did it say back there? My ears open. Yeah, you opened my ears. You dug out my ears. That's not quite the same as saying a body you prepared for me. Well, you know, it is, sort of. Because this is an interpretive translation. What did it mean, you've dug out my ears? Well, it meant you've made me hear and obey. What's the body idea? The instrument of carrying out the word that's heard. So whether you emphasize the hearing of it that leads to you carrying it out, 
or the body that does the carrying out of the word you've heard, the idea is the same. What God wants is obedience. He wants a body that does his will. That's what God wanted, not sacrifice and offerings. That's what God's always wanted. <coughs> and so that's what God gets here. Let me see if that's... Um, so, um, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What you see is, Jesus gave God what he really wanted. Not an animal offered in sacrifice, but a life of obedience. A body, open ears, submission and delight to do God's will. So, here's what I wrote. God wanted obedience and not sacrifices. That's even what he said in 1 Samuel 15, you might remember. He takes away the sacrifices that do not really please God and provides the body that does accomplish God's will. What God got in Jesus was what he was looking for all along. Obedience. What God was looking for all along wasn't more animals. It wasn't that God got just a big thrill out of animals. God wanted obedience. Jesus gave it. So God took away the animal sacrifice and established the sacrifice of the perfectly obedient man the one that finally gave God what he was looking for all along. That was God's desire. They got the idea God really loved barbecue. Or whatever. That wasn't the idea. What God wanted was obedience. That's what he was really longing for. Jesus gave what God really wanted. That's why it never has to be repeated. Because he finally fulfilled the very thing God was looking for. Somebody who had ears opened, somebody with a body dedicated to serving him. So now you see why the animal sacrifices weren't adequate. They weren't what God really wanted. They were sort of just something that you had to do because you didn't give God what he wanted. And you see why Jesus' sacrifice doesn't have to be repeated because he had finally done what God was looking for all along. Submit to his will. That's what God wanted. That's what Jesus did. Therefore, his sacrifice was adequate. That's an awful lot to say just to try to explain that passage. There's probably a more concise way of doing that. So, do you have comments and thoughts on that? Does that make any sense? So, are you saying that if the people had done what God wanted all along, like, then that would have been it? Yes! As a matter of fact, <laughs> that, that would have been fine. If Adam and Eve had just done what God wanted, you know what? It would have been paradise. God would have dwelt with them. They'd have lived together in joy and harmony and peace. That's what God wanted. All, all he wanted was them just to obey him. That's what God's always longed for. And I really think if, you know, anybody else had come along and just done what God wanted, that's all That's all needed. That, that's, that's all he wanted. Unfortunately, nobody did until Jesus finally did what God had asked. He obeyed him.
kind of like saying that, you know, what the policeman really wants is not, this may not be always the truth, but it's not the fine and the jail time. The policeman wants you to respect the law. You know, theoretically, that's what, I mean, that'd be a lot better than, you know, the fine and the jail time. Because the fine and the jail time means you didn't do what the law said. Comments and questions? Same. Something like that I was thinking about when we were reading this is in my life and in Christian, something I realized in my life, I go to the acts of worship without realizing why I do them. You know, I'd rather obey God than what I'm doing instead of just doing, like going to church. You know, I can sit in a pew all day, but do I mean them? Am I obeying God in going to church and truly meaning my worship and coming before Him in respect? You know, I can do everything he tells me to do, but if I don't mean him, if I don't obey him in that, then it's just worthless. So that what we need to think about in everything is what God really wants, which we may misunderstand, and like they had. Good point. Other thoughts and questions on this? scroll of the book is the law? <clears throat> yes. Okay. I believe so. Yeah, I think so. And other, you know, that, that's that's what he obeys. What's written. Psalm 40 is a really good psalm in its own right. I like that psalm. There's a lot more to it than the part we looked at. But the part we looked at is a good part. So again, we see how the the uh, animal sacrifices fit this idea of a, a shadow. Yes. Um, I don't remember if the question has been asked in here or not, but I've heard it recently. And why didn't God just offer Jesus right off the bat, rather than going through the whole law of Moses and bringing us to that point? I don't know if you have thoughts in that regard. I mean, obviously, you could just answer it with, well, that wasn't his plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that is the answer. The question might be, has he revealed anything as to why that is his plan? Um, maybe some. I mean, I think of passages like Romans 3 that talk about how the law shut up all men under sin. Perhaps going through the process he did helped man see his need more. There's probably other things to be said about it, but mm -hmm. that, that comes to my mind. Do you have some answers to no, that? No, no that, that, that's good. I think that would be one angle. Sometimes it's easier to say something that we know is true. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important thing that's true, and certainly doesn't mean it's everything that's true. I think that that, that would be a truth, uh, but, but there may be, you know, even greater reasons. Other comments or questions? I'm just wondering if you would, part of that 
reason might be so that you would appreciate the appreciate the sacrifice more. I mean, if you have, in a sense, you have to work for it. You have to do something. There's there's a process that was gone through by people through the old law, and you know this is what we tried to do, and we didn't understand it, and now, I mean. It's mm-hmm. part of this seeing the difference between what it was and what it should be and what it now is. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> Other thoughts? Verse 9, is that going back to Melchizedek? And what's... The first in order to establish the second. I'm talking about the back to the priesthood? No. Or the covenant? No. I think the first is the sacrifices and offerings, and the second is the obedient body. He takes away the sacrifices and offerings to establish the second, what God really wanted, an obedient life. That's what I think. To me, that makes more sense in the context. That's not, I don't know if that's the majority view, but I think that is follows more. He's taken away the sacrifice and offerings to establish, you know, to establish what God looked for all along. Obedience. He gave it. <laughs> and so his sacrifice was the one God really wanted. Another way to think of that be that he took away the animal sacrifices in order to establish the obedient sacrifice? Sure, sure. Let's just say what I said in a different way. Because uh, I think it does go back to the sacrifices and exactly. two, different, two different kinds. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, and it's almost like the second kind, the point isn't so much the sacrifice, but the obedience that then qualified him to be a perfect sacrifice. I've never heard that before, so... <laughs> but I don't know that I've ever heard anybody exactly say what I thought, what they thought it meant, but I, I did not come to that conclusion myself. Yeah. Well, a common view among brethren sometimes is that the first means the first covenant, uh-huh. and the second yeah. means the second covenant. I'm not even sure what commentators say on that. I don't remember that they say a whole lot, but it's been a while since I don't do commentaries on Hebrew, so. It might not make a great deal of difference when it's all said and done, but it just seems to be more in the context of what I suggest. Because all of those things are tied together. Yes, <coughs> that's exactly right. They are. Yeah. Is the covenant, the law, the sacrifice, the yeah. priesthood, it's all or nothing. Yes, that's correct. Other thoughts, comments, and questions? <clears throat> well, I think the next section is really an outstanding summary of really quite a bit of what we've been looking at uh, for the last uh, while here in uh, Hebrews.
Hebrews. So 11 to 18. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. He is contrasting the priests in verse 11 with Jesus starting in verse 12. Now you see some important contrasts between them. What do you see? Ministering daily. Versus? Um, offering once. Yeah, for all time. You know, you've got the daily versus one time for all time. What else? Offering the same sacrifices and offering one sacrifice? Okay, that's fair. Okay. What about stands and sits? Yes! I'm glad you noticed that. I think that's significant. Because, I mean, the other points we've seen already, but this one maybe is a very visual way of seeing the point. Every priest stands daily. Now, why does he need to stand? Because he's not finished. He's got work to do. <laughs> you know... There were no chairs in the tabernacle. <laughs> you keep offering, you keep sacrificing over and over and over and over and over again. But Jesus, what does he do? He sits down because it's finished. Exactly. <clears throat> His sacrifice took away sin. He doesn't have any more work to do. He sits down. Awaiting the ultimate conquest of his enemies. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So Jesus' death definitively dealt with sin. He doesn't need to stand. He needs to know. There is even another contrast from verse 11 to verses 12 and following. What's that? It's verse... The can't take away sin and perfected. Or maybe the can't take away sins and the forgiveness that he speaks of in 16, 17, 18. You know, there's a difference in the effect. You know, those sacrifices can never take away sins. Jesus' sacrifice, there's no more remembrance. They're completely taken away. Now, if there's forgiveness, there must be a definitive offering for sins. If, if, they are, if they are forgiven and never remembered again, if they are taken away in the sense that you don't have to offer me any more sacrifice or anything, then that sacrifice must have been adequate. So I think that just kind of sums it up. Why go back? Jesus did something 
that that resolved the issue that never was really resolved in the Old Testament. Comments? Did did they understand that in the Old Testament? Understand what? That the sin was not done away with? Exactly, sort of? Well... I don't think the in the Old Testament you have a whole lot to help you understand how it was that God did forgive the sins. I think you have a few hints. Isaiah 53, I think, is very helpful along that line. But I think, I don't know what they thought, but I think I would have, if I just had the Old Testament, sort of view it as magic. You know, God just forgives. But you don't really know how or why. I mean, Romans will say that the gospel more or less um, substantiates God's righteousness in having not punished the sins that were previously committed. I think in the Old Testament, when you see men being forgiven without an adequate basis, it almost calls into question whether God is really righteous and just. You see the forgiveness, but you don't see the payment offered. It's like he's been writing cold checks. He's writing checks of forgiveness, but you don't see the funds in the bank to pay those checks. When Jesus dies, it's like, oh, that's how he was doing that. He really was righteous because he knew that Jesus was going to die. That's the way I look at that. Ephesians 3 calls it the mystery, um, that it was a mystery until then, the mystery of which angels long ago. The mystery is fairly broad, several aspects of it. But I actually, it was interesting you said that, Megan. I was listening today to a sermon of Scott Smelser's in which he used essentially the very same point that I just made from Romans 3 and the idea of, you know, God, Jesus finally, you know, paying what God had given. I, he might have even used, I think he maybe used the check illustration. Uh, if, if not, it was, it was essentially the same point. So, I connect you with Scott since Scott now preaches in Gettysburg. Although he didn't preach that, I don't think, when you lived there, did he? Did he really? Okay. Has he been there for... Okay, I didn't realize he'd been there. Uh, he's been there since 1995. 1995. He promised us eight, three years, and he's been there 12. Well, hard guy to get rid of, I guess. <laughs> he's, he's another very good mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I didn't realize he'd been there. That's cool. Uh, comments and questions? I think 1018 sort of ends a section, really almost a major division. It ends more or less the more, I don't know what to call these. <laughs> Scott actually in the sermon I think called it, maybe this was, just, this was in Romans actually, but called it the conceptual part. <laughs> that, that's, that's a cool way to think of it. Or the doctrinal part, I don't like using doctrinal that way, but you know, more the theoretical part, you know, or whatever. Kind of giving the, the more uh, deeper basis, and now comes the application of that, the therefore part. 
on the basis of these truths and these teachings, therefore we must do this. And uh, most of the epistles do something like that. Many of them do. Sort of a, a theory part and a practical part, or however you want to say those things. So, how about 19 to 25? <clears throat> Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Alright, therefore, since, and so he kind of sums up what we've learned. Since we have what in verse 19? Confidence. Confidence to do what? Enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Wow. That's an amazing confidence. Because in the Old Testament, how much confidence would you have to enter the holy place? Depends on if I were a high priest with the proper blood and at the right time of the year and, and all that. <laughs> That's it. You know, the, the holy place was closed <laughs> off to anybody except the high priest and him only on that one day with blood. Now we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Jesus' death, Jesus' sacrifice opened the way for us through the veil into the presence of God. We have access to God's presence by Jesus' death. And I think that in a very graphic, physical, literal way, you see that when the veil was split in two from top to bottom. <laughs> the barrier that blocked man's access to God's presence was ripped apart. Because that veil, that barrier, was really a symbol of what? Sin. That's the thing that kept man and God apart from each other. Jesus dies, he sheds his blood to forgive sins so that that barrier is ripped apart and man can now have boldness to come right into the very presence of God. That is no small thing. That is an amazing statement. And I think seeing how great a blessing that is will make his applications in 22 to 25 uh, have a great deal of uh, force to them. And since we have, verse 21, a great high priest over the house of God. Uh, great priest, rather, over the house of God. So surely 
after we've studied through these last few chapters, we clearly do have a great priest. So since we have boldness to have access, since we have the great high priest, let us, let us, and let us. You've got three points he'll make based upon the things that he's already shown us. Comments and questions through 21. In the holy place, he's talking about the real thing. I think so, yes. Yeah, not no, just the tabernacle. Nothing makes sense, but it's the real one as well, which makes it even a bigger Good point, deal. yes. Not even enter... They couldn't even enter the, the facsimile, <laughs> uh, except as the high priest once a year with blood. We get to enter the real thing any day we want no matter who we are, through the blood of Christ. It, it amazes me that the Jews would even want to go back to this first covenant. Exactly! It was so much better. To say. <laughs> exactly! <clears throat> I think it amazed the writer. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. You're right. He wants them to come to that conclusion, too. <laughs> <laughs> It only took him ten chapters. So. Yeah, wow, you got it. You got it quick. <laughs> no comment. So, <laughs> is, is there a significance to it being a living way? I, 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 I mean, the, the obvious contrast would be a dead way. But uh, well, God is a living God. He said that several times, like in three twelve and nine fourteen. So maybe we need a living way to a living God, and Jesus is our living way. I have a note, and I have no idea how valid it is, but I think it must be true. Um, or anyway, that, that word "new" by a new and living way in twenty. I have a note that says that that means uh, freshly slain. And that it's the only time that that word is used in the New Testament. Now, again, I can't corroborate that. So, I'd have to do some Greek work. It's corroborated. And that would, that would speak, if that is true, then the freshly slain and the living... Yeah, the paradox. So that my Bible says too. I have a note here. It's talking about the Greek word. The Greek word is something that means either freshly slain or recently killed. I guess it's ever almost ever. Spell the Greek word. Uh, P R O S P H A T O S. That's fine. I too had written in the section we've just studied, I've written out to the side of my Bible, somebody evidently had once said, the idea of a fearful uncertainty. And I couldn't, I wasn't connecting it with any of the exact passages where I had written it next to it. But I think I had written it on, in that section as a contrast to what we see in verse 19. We have confidence. There is no more the aura that they lived under that maybe at best could be termed fearful uncertainty with regard to their relationship with God. And boy, it's just the opposite now. Good point.
So, let us, in verse 22, do what? Draw near. Draw near. Let us come to the Lord. The way has been opened up. We have the access. The barrier has been taken away. The only logical thing is to take advantage of that and draw near. And uh, draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We can have confidence. We can have boldness. We can have assurance that we have access to God and we have the right to come into His presence. Having a couple of things. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Um, You know, in other words, we've repented. And our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's a reference to baptism. You know, our hearts have been cleansed, our bodies have been washed, and so we now can draw near with full assurance of faith. And, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, other things are shifting and uncertain, but we can have confidence without wavering. We, we, we can hold it steady. Um, because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let's seek to encourage each other in this. That's kind of kind of looking over the top at those. But do you notice anything interesting in 22, 23, and 24, putting them together? What three qualities do you have there? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And guess what? Chapter 11 is our chapter on faith. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. We talk about love. Chapter 12 does actually, in many respects, deal with hope. It may not be quite as clear, but you might look starting at 12.22 and following, and particularly 28. Um, So... In a sense, we are previewing the next three chapters. The faith, chapter 11, the hope, chapter 12, and the love, chapter 13. I wouldn't just take my life to him intentionally having that identification, but it is kind of intriguing. It's like Revelation. <laughs> that one chapter, the, the headline chapter. That's right, chapter 14. Yes. <coughs> and we like headlines. We like Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> and Hebrews. Alright. Um, what, what are your thoughts and comments on 22 and 23? I agree with your comment about the 22, the heart sprinkled and bodies washed. You know, having an inference to baptism made me think too back to the the um, chapter nine and verse thirteen, talking about the the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer. They took the blood and sprinkled it, and the ashes of a heifer. They had to wash themselves in that water to be cleansed after being ceremonially unclean. Maybe there's a tie there too. Good point. 
how does this sprinkling directly relate to repentance? Um, well, the sprinkling was sort of a cleansing thing. They'd sprinkle the blood. And if he's talking about having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, then we're purifying our heart, we're purifying our conscience, which is basically the idea of turning to God. I wouldn't... I mean, I think... I wouldn't say that it's only repentance, but it involves our repentance. When our hearts and our consciences are sprinkled clean, then we have turned our heart and our conscience to God. Again, 9.14 talked about cleansing your conscience from dead works, which we talked about, I think, last time. Yes, yeah, good. That, that's good. I just really don't see any particular reason not to see baptism as alluded to in our bodies washed with pure water. It seems to me that that reference is too clear. Uh, you know, denominational commentators sometimes try to play with this because they don't like water baptism. Although many of them still see that reference. But I think when we see the washing of water concept, uh, Ephesians 5, I think, is the same thing, cleansing the church, but the washing of water with the word, the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, 5, you know, it seems to me such an obvious allusion to baptism. But I think people resist that only because they have a preconceived theological notion. We have... Had our hearts sprinkled <coughs> clean, we've had our bodies washed with pure water, therefore let us draw near. You know, you guys have repented and been baptized, you've had the sins cleansed, now draw near. It's almost like there's nothing holding them back. Exactly. <laughs> the, uh, just thinking about the ashes of the red heifer, which was that was in water and sprinkled, sprinkled. Yes. And this is not that kind of water. This is pure water. Yes. Which I'm assuming doesn't mean that we can never be baptized in a place like the Hudson River. <laughs> in Ohio, but... Uh, <laughs> or the Jordan. <laughs> or the Jordan, yeah. You, I mean, that place is just nasty. Only distilled water for us. Yeah. <laughs> pure spring water. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, we're not there yet. <laughs> oh, no, we're, we're 23, aren't we? Uh -huh. Okay, sorry. Um, I do like the NIV in 23 where it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Yes. Yeah, that's not saying it's ain't clear, but I, I like that alternate reading. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. <coughs> you know, because of what Jesus has done, we can keep a tight grip on, on this hope. You know, we say we have this hope, and it's the thing we need to anchor ourselves to. Well, we've already talked about that. Yes. An anchor that's within the veil. It is that um, firm grip of hope <clears throat> that keeps us steady. So then it keeps us from swerving. 
You know, it's the thing that we have emotional ups and downs, we have setbacks, and we have all kinds of things that happen in our lives, but that hope is that steadying thing. It's sure and steadfast, and therefore it keeps us steady in uncertain times. Twenty-four and twenty-five is worth considering separately. Maybe let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I mean, to consider means really put your attention on it. And what are you supposed to consider? What are you supposed to give your attention to? How to stimulate each other to love and good deeds? We have a responsibility to help our brethren, encourage them to love and good deeds. And one of the ways we do that is by not forsaking our own assembling together as apparently some people were in the habit of doing. God does not want us to go it alone. We need the fellowship of other Christians. The word saint practically never occurs in the singular. It's almost always plural, saints. You know, you, you just see so much in the Bible... Uh, in the New Testament, of the family, the body, of the need Christians have for each other. We need to come together to encourage each other. I see an idea, maybe it's always been there, but that I think is incorrect. We are people who like to pride ourselves on our independence. And so I hear people saying, well, I want to be able to be a Christian and not need anybody else. Feeling like if I need other people to gain strength and encouragement from, somehow this isn't quite as legitimate. I should have just done it without having to have anybody else's help. I don't understand why we think that. Since everything God says is that we do need each other's help, and that's why he provided it, and he wanted us to be a body and a family. He wants us to be together and to encourage each other. He didn't see the ideal as being, well, I'll give you some people to help you, but I really wish you'd just stand alone. He didn't do it that way. He tells us, don't stand alone. Don't forsake your coming together use this to encourage each other. So I don't think the ideal would be if we were just tough enough, we'd just do it by ourselves and we wouldn't have to, you know, get any help from anybody else. But I see people thinking that that would be better. Do you have some thoughts and comments on all that? I have a question. Yes. Dr. Merson, um, have you ever just that this is just out of curiosity, have you ever heard anyone use the idea of having your heart sprinkled clean to advocate sprinkling for baptism? I, I know that it probably is used. I don't know that I've ever encountered it. Uh, this would be a hard passage because the bodies are washed. So <laughs> that, that, I think... Uh, if I was going to try to defend sprinkling, I'd probably try to avoid this passage. <laughs> but I wouldn't be at all surprised somebody does. In verse 25, the phrase, as is the habit of some, that reminded me that this is actually a letter to real people. Yes. So, I mean, it's saying to this group of people, some of you 
are doing this, which Hebrews seems to be, to me at least, it seems to be the light <coughs> revelation in that it's easy to forget that it is a letter to someone. Or, I mean, it's more like a thesis or a dissertation or something, but... Although he has sprinkled some exhortations throughout this even earlier, I mean, he hasn't forgotten the practical nature of this. And, you know, in chapter uh, 2, he exhorts for a while. In chapter 3 and 4, he does. In chapter uh, 5 at the end, he does in 6. So, I mean, he's, he has kept in mind the fact these people need it. But 7 through 10, 18, we didn't have as much of that. And now we're getting a double dose. puts a whole new spin, doesn't it, on uh, on our coming together. I mean, or maybe it does, uh, depending upon what our attitude is. But if I'm going to punch my ticket, if I'm going to please the Lord, then there's another aspect of our coming together as well. Yes. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just not getting very much out of this. Well, I think his view what would be you need to be giving a lot to this. You need to be thinking how you can help the others grow and how you can encourage them. I'm afraid sometimes we come to church mostly thinking about, I hope this is good and I enjoy it. Or even, I hope it builds me up. Which is not wrong, but I think our first thought ought to be, how can I build them up? How can I encourage them? And I'm afraid we don't use it that way enough. Because we may be too self-focused and not really be seeking to build our brethren up as we come together. And through that, we'll get encouragement. I mean, you put something into it, you get something out. <laughs> yes. And I get encouraged, I mean, most of the time. I am, I'm more encouraged by the ones I talk to and trying to help because they help me in return. Amen. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, I don't know all the answers to that, um, but, I mean, the fact is, we are getting closer and closer to the day. You know, when you think of that as the day of Christ's return, the day of our death, or whatever, but we're getting closer to D-Day, however you want to define that, and that ought to just make it more and more fervent. I mean, you know, I don't know, I mean, the older we get in the Lord the more serious we ought to take things. Um, I mean, I certainly think more about meeting the Lord now than I did 20 years ago because it's more obvious to me that it's not going to be as long as I thought it was going to be. You know, it's 20 years fast in a hurry. Wow. I mean, you know, and so the, I mean, you realize time is moving on. We don't have time to waste. We need to really be encouraging each other. like from that last phrase that you should see that the day is drawing near and you should you can see that yes. if you look so it's not something that's you know just passing by and you're not aware of it so you should be aware of that and do these things I think so I think we ought to be seeing the the day drawing
any things you want to say through verse 25. Um, backing up a little bit to approaching, like, in faith, um, I'm just thinking that God is the same God as they were fearfully uncertain to come to his presence in the Old Testament, but now we can come with boldness, so it shows how much Jesus changed, not that God changed or that we're any better, but how much different Jesus Yes, that's exactly right. The before and after here is all because of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Other comments? I think maybe that goes back to John's question of why God sent Jesus later. Because we would have no idea about that difference we would just take that closeness for granted if we hadn't had that example first. Well, that's a good point. The law was a schoolmaster, and I think just like Jesus used parables and physical things we could understand, um, sheesh, I wouldn't have any clue what heaven was like, you know, if at all. And I have a much better understanding of heaven because I can see the holy place and the tabernacle um, than without it, you know, because that was something physical that was, you know, it's kind of like a parable, is a, a physical um, thing with a heavenly meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we can certainly see the contrast and appreciate more what we have now. Other thoughts? All right, well, why don't we stop here then, and I don't know what we're going to try to do, or if we're going to try to do something next week being Labor Day. How does that affect the rest of you? Anybody know how that affects them? Do you all have funds on Labor Day, Ariel? I don't know. I don't know which one it is. Which one Labor Day is? No. Which one we normally do something on? Oh. So I guess we'll just kind of play it by ear. Perhaps we'll try to do this. I don't know the plan I've got at the moment, but that doesn't mean that there won't be something <laughs> happening that I need to pay attention to. But uh, uh, at least I don't think it's out of the question that we may try to do this next week. So. Well, those in school are off school, right? Right. And I assume most of us who have other jobs aren't working that day. So it might make it easier, actually. And I'll be unemployed by then. <laughs> congratulations. After tomorrow, I'll be unemployed. Wow. Wow. Say congratulations. We had a sermon about that yesterday at church. And how work, that say work is a good thing. We should be thankful for. Well, I was really saying that's for you. <laughs> I assume she interpreted that as a good thing to be working, so. But yes, I agree. I like to work. Well, no, yesterday after the sermon, I did comment that work was evil, so. And I said, you must have been sleeping. Oh, we would, we like to work. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. That area, though. I bet Debbie.